Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you news from across Ukraine, discuss recent developments in Germany, and we analyse the decision of London Mayor Sadiq Khan to block a plan to send cars to Ukraine that would otherwise be scrapped under London's new ultra-low emission zone. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 18th of December. One year and 297 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley, editor of the Central Asia and South Caucasus Bulletin, James Kilner, and our guest is Dr. Thomas Clausen, a historian who works at a liberal think tank in Berlin. But first, the news from Ukraine. Over the weekend, the drone battles and missile strikes continued across the country. This comes from the US-based think tank, the ISW, the Institute for the Study of War. Russian forces conducted a series of missile and drone strikes against Ukraine on the night of December the 16th and 17th. The Ukrainian Air Force reported that Russia launched a KH-59 missile from occupied Crimea and Kherson Oblast, and an Iskander M missile as well. The Ukrainian Air Force, for their part, reported that Russian forces also launched 20 Shahid-136-131 drones from Krasnodokrai, as well as Cape Chowder in occupied Crimea. Ukrainian officials said that they shot down the KH-59 missile and all of the drones over Odessa, Kherson, Zaporizhia and Khmelnytsky oblasts. So, what are the Russians aiming for? Ukrainian Air Force spokesman Colonel Yuri Inyat stated on December the 17th that Russian forces targeted Kherson city and an airfield in Khmelnytsky oblast. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said on December 16th that Ukrainian forces have destroyed 104 out of 112 Russian Shahid drones launched at Ukraine in the past week. On the Russian side, the Russian Ministry of Defence claimed that Russian air defences shot down 35 Ukrainian drones over Lipetsk, Rostov and Volgograd blasts on the night of December the 16th. Rostov Governor uh, Vasily um, Golubev claimed on December the 17th that Russian forces shot down most of the drones and Russian and Ukrainian sources have stated that a Ukrainian drone damaged at least one Russian aircraft at an airfield in Rostov Oblast. Elsewhere, artillery duels have continued up and down the front near Bakhmut. Russia has said that it destroyed Ukrainian camouflaged self-propelled guns and a tank. The footage that comes from the Russian Ministry of Defence, so obligatory pinch of salt here, uh, purportedly shows Russian forces destroying two Ukrainian self-propelled guns and a tank with Lancet kamikaze drones near Andrivka. We have not been able to independently verify these claims or the footage, but if it's true, it's more evidence of the capability and effectiveness of the Lancet drones that we've known for months have been one of the chief tormentors of Ukrainian troops. 
Some more news that we also need to take with appropriate caveats that's coming out this morning. Anti-Putin paramilitaries say that they've staged a cross-border attack inside Russia's Bulgarod region. The Freedom of Russia Legion, a Ukrainian-based paramilitary group of Russians who are who are, remember, designated as terrorists by Moscow, claiming responsibility. They said that they destroyed a platoon stronghold of Russian troops near Terebreno village and later rigged the site with mines. They did not specify whether it had destroyed infrastructure or killed soldiers. Just to remind ourselves, the Freedom of Russia Legion formed in spring 2022 to fight Putin's forces from within the ranks of the armed forces of Ukraine. Earlier on Sunday, the governor of Belgorod region said that Terebreno, the village, was under fire from Ukraine's armed forces and that a shooting battle was underway on the village edge. Moving on, a senior army general, Ukrainian, has told Reuters that frontline Ukrainian troops face shortages of artillery shells and have scaled back some military operations because of a shortfall of foreign assistance, something that James Kilner will talk about later, I'm sure. So this comes from Brigadier General Oleksandr Tarnovsky, who's speaking after Republican lawmakers held up a 60 billion US aid package and Hungary blocked 50 billion euros in an EU funding bid for Kyiv. We discussed all of that at length on Friday. The Brigadier General said there's a problem with ammunition especially post-Soviet shells. That's 1.22mm and 1.52mm, and today these problems exist across the entire front line. He also said that the shortage of artillery shells was a very big problem, and the drop in foreign military aid was having an impact on the battlefield. Just to finish off before we go to Francis, Ukraine's army chief, Valery Zeluzhny, said on Monday that the situation on the front line had not reached a stalemate. Answering a question about whether he considers the battlefield uh, battlefield situation a stalemate, he replied, no. This comes from Ukraine's RBC media, and he declined to comment on whether Ukraine would continue counteroffensive operations during the winter due to the sensitivity of the matter. And just to finish this section, Valery Zeluzhny also said on Monday that a covert listening device had been found in one of the offices where he works and hinted without elaborating that the bugs were detected in other locations too. He said to local media about these, about Sunday's revelation from Ukraine's security service that during a routine sweep, a bug was found in a room he used. The device wasn't working. I have several offices where I work. This happened in one of them, Mr. Zeluzhny said. We checked the room and found the device. Those are, I think, the most important battlefield updates. So let's go to Francis Sternley first to talk us through some of the other stories over the weekend. Francis. Well, thank you, David. Further to Thomas, it's great to be sharing the airwaves with James Kilner again. We were sharing a pint a couple of weeks ago and realised that we hadn't been on the podcast together since September, I believe, when I was watching world leaders munch Mars bars at the UN. He is going to be covering one or two of the big political stories in detail as they warrant deeper analysis. But before he does so, here are a few other updates in other realms, as you say. Whilst not the biggest international story, I'm going to start with a row that's erupted here in Britain. London's mayor, Sadiq Khan, has blocked a plan to send cars to Ukraine that would otherwise be scrapped under a green scheme designed to reduce pollution in the capital. So in a letter written to Vitaly Klitschko, the mayor of Kiev, of course, obtained by The Telegraph, the mayor has said he will not allow the vehicles, which tend to be 4x4s and pickup trucks, to be sent to the war zone as originally planned because they did not meet the legal threshold, his term, that requires the scrappage scheme to benefit Londoners from, quote, an economic, social and environmental perspective. Now, many are understandably pretty incredulous at this. So just to give you the full context, under the London ULEZ scheme, motorists are able to 
claim a one-off payment if they scrap a vehicle that does not comply with the mayor's new pollution levy. If they instead keep their non-compliant vehicles, they must pay a daily charge. Now, back in September, Klitschko wrote to Mr Khan after noting this scheme, proposing that some of the vehicles be donated to Ukraine. He said they'd have enormous potential and could be used in a variety of life-saving and transport roles. But it's this proposal that Sadiq Khan has turned down. Now, just to give you a flavour of some of the reaction to this, Susan Hall, a Conservative candidate for the Mayor of London, has criticised the decision in the strongest possible terms. She's told us Khan's refusal to send scrapped cars to Ukraine, citing a legal quirk, is absurd. Londoners who choose to scrap their cars should have the freedom to decide for themselves if they want their car sent to support Ukraine. Standing with Kiev against tyrants like Putin is not only a moral imperative, but also in the best interest of all Londoners and the global community. Now, I'm very aware this story may come across as rather parochial, but I mention it here because of what it tells us about the evolving political context here in Britain and also in the wider West. I would wager that this denial would not have been politically possible, say, a year ago. It's revealing that the mayor now thinks it is. He may still have to back down, and I wouldn't be surprised if he does. But that he felt able to do this, I think, tells its own story and is indicative of a trend that we are seeing at the moment as Ukraine has slightly dipped out of the key headlines. However, I do believe that with things quietening down in Israel Gaza, or at least some of the initial shock dissipating, that Ukraine will return to being the core geopolitical issue of the moment. And indeed, there is already some evidence of that. And I'm sure that would be of some relief to Kiev if it does. Now, in other news, a binder containing highly classified information on Russian election interference went missing at the end of the Trump administration and has never been recovered. That's according to US sources in a major piece of reportage by CNN and others. American intelligence officials are concerned that the file of national secrets could be exposed, revealing the CIA's official assessment of Russian attempts to secure the 2016 election for Donald Trump. And it comes as the Kremlin said on Friday that it wants a more constructive relationship with the US following the elections next year in a hint, not a surprising one, that Putin would favour Trump over Joe Biden, given Trump's remarks about Putin and Russia and the war in Ukraine in the past. Now, the binder was last seen, we're told, in the White House in the final days of Mr. Trump's presidency as aides worked to redact classified information from the FBI's investigation into Russian interference. It is believed to contain intelligence gathered by the US and other NATO allies and details the work of Russian agents during the 2016 election. Now, there was a separate report by Robert Mueller, who was appointed to investigate Russian interference in 2016. Now, that report, which has been made public, as it were, found that Putin's agents attempted to sway the election results in a sweeping and systematic fashion, direct quote. The report, though, found no collusion between Trump and Putin, as many had claimed and indeed had been an election issue. But it did rule that Trump was receptive to offers of assistance from the Russian state. 
Now, it's believed that the binder was held at the CIA with intelligence officials requiring top-level clearance to handle it within the agency's headquarters in Langley, Virginia. But it later went missing during a frantic attempt to declassify reports relating to Russian interference by Trump and his aides as he prepared to leave office in January 2021. That's what many sources have told CNN. Now, I think we will hear more about this story as we get closer to the election next year. The role of Russia in elections, not only in the European context, but in the United States, I think is destined to become a much bigger talking point this time around than it was last time around. And it was pretty sizable last time, just given the upgrade of Russian interference in numerous entities and programs as a result of, of course, what many would argue is a sort of existential war for the Kremlin regime in Ukraine. But that's a subject for another time. Lastly, yet another serious allegation is being made regarding Russian war crimes, namely that Russian soldiers carved swastikas into the foreheads of two Ukrainian prisoners of war, leaving them struggling with severe psychological trauma. Suffice to say, this act was likely inspired by Moscow's claims that this war in Ukraine is a special denazification operation. It may also have mimicked a scene in the well-known film Inglorious Bastards, which I only mention because there is a well-recorded phenomena in war of some soldiers seeking to take on the sort of strongman role of characters in cinema. Film has long served as an inspiration, of course, as much as it is a a warning as regard to war, even if that's not the intention of the directors. It plays a role in popular consciousness and culture, after all. Now, mobilised into the Ukrainian military not long after Russia invaded, one of these Ukrainian soldiers was captured after a fierce skirmish last December in the Donetsk region. His captors took him to a processing sector, we understand, where he was subjected to two weeks of torture. They kept him in a basement with no food, only taking him out to beat him unconscious. Now, apparently the swastika, and we've got images in the story on our website, which just speaks to the barbarity of this, frankly, runs from just below his hairline to above his brow and was likely cut with a knife, the doctors believe. Soon after, he was transferred to Chechnya, where he arrived almost naked and covered in layers of dried blood and was released five months later in a prisoner exchange. A year on, the psychological scars are said to be extremely deep and he finds it almost impossible to talk about what happened to him. The physical marks of course remain and whilst there are treatments available according to our story there are well these kind of cases are not a priority in a seriously stretched healthcare system at war where wounded soldiers and civilians facing life-threatening injuries often take precedence and that's something that we've spoken about I seem to recall with Svetlana Moralets in the past. But for more on that story Liz Cookman has written it up for us on our website and we'll have a link in the description because it goes into much more detail of the terrible case that's been recorded by this. Well thank you very much Francis for your updates there. Let's go to James Kilner then. Uh, James you're in Riga. How is it and would you like to start by talking to us about the the tensions growing on the Finnish-Russian border? Hi, David. Yeah, I'm in Riga. It was very snowy and now uh, we've had a thaw and a huge amount of water flooding the streets and uh, running down down the side of the streets. Lumps of ice falling off buildings. So you have to be pretty careful at the moment. But on to the issues of the day, which is uh, the Ukraine-Russia war. Uh, it was, as usual, busy weekend. I'm going to 
concentrate on two or three stories that I think listeners need to give their attention to. The first, with the, the big headline story over the weekend is really these warnings by US and EU diplomats that unless these two massive aid bills from being held up by the within the EU and, and, and the US Senate, unless they are passed, Ukraine could lose the war within a few months by, by the end of the summer, one, one diplomat was saying. Another diplomat was saying this would have enormously negative consequences for the security of Europe. And the, well, they're referencing Butcher and, and all that sort of destruction. But uh, um, a slight hyperbole around that. But anyway, it would be incredibly negative for, for Europe, of course. And, and um, the, the, the concept of Ukraine losing is, is, is a deeply worrying one. And really, this comes down to weapon supplies and ammunition supplies, as Francis was saying. And David also referenced, you referenced earlier, David. And they were saying that unless the, the EU and the US got their act together and passed these bills, they've been held up. In the Senate, because of uh, rousing of immigration in the EU, Hungary and Slovakia have blocked it, or hung- Hungary at least, and Austria was on the fence, quibbling over some, some details. But unless these bills are passed, uh, th- these diplomats were saying that, the, that Ukraine's going to run out of missiles, uh, uh, air defense missiles, shoulder missiles, and tank missiles, this sort of thing. And it comes at a time when reports from the front line that I've been reading already show that Ukraine is running out of artillery shells, of kits. Uh, reports say that Russia can fire up to five times as many shells in a battle uh, as Ukraine, for example. And uh, I read a report last week, uh, these patched together attack helicopters that the Ukrainians have are limited in, in, in their mission runs. They can only get deployed against vehicles, i.e. they can't get deployed against infantry going over the top around Avdivka. So really worrying uh, signs there. And I, and I, I'd really like listeners to, to try and compare this to, to, what we, to the sort of messages we're getting from Russia. Uh, Putin signed deals with North Korea, we know, with, with Iran, etc. He's reorientated his economy to support his military industrial complex. Um, he's very much on the front foot. And it very much seems that the, the Kremlin feel they have their supply lines, their military supply lines in order Whereas the the Ukrainians are reliant on the West, and we know that the West is getting tired of backing this this war, and it's the support there is fracturing, and that is that's very very dangerous for Ukraine for all the obvious reasons. And this this sort of leads into the second story of of the weekend, the big story of the weekend, uh, was this report in New York Times. One of their reporters had spoken to some of the Marines who'd come back from fighting a battle on the left bank of the Dnipro River around a fishing village called Klinky, where they had a couple of months ago or six weeks ago uh, established some sort of toehold or foothold on on that side of the of, of the river. And um, Ukrainian cheerleaders were saying this is uh, potentially a very significant breakthrough. Uh, it's been a very daring mission. Now we've got this foothold. Now we can build a proper bridgehead and mount really push through to towards Crimea, etc. A few hundred miles away. But anyway, and start pushing, really pushing the Russians back. Um, the messages from the Ukrainian Marines who were talking to New York Times gave a very different picture. They said it's an absolute hellscape. Uh, stepping, having to step over their comrades' bodies, any talk of a genuine foothold, uh, toehold, uh, military bridgehead is is misplaced. It's really desperate stuff. Um, so, and a really uh, an important story there, um, and and actually one that tallies with what 
Vladimir Putin was saying at his press conference, his marathon press con- conference on Thursday, which I watched four hours long, he, he referenced this particular battle at one point and said that Ukrainian forces there were getting murdered by, uh, slaughtered by Russian artillery. So really worrying signs, important signs to remember that not everything you hear from from both sides is is, is accurate, and I and I think that's really uh, important to bear in mind. And it comes at a time when, as we discuss at length, the Russians are on the front foot on 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 the front line around Avdivka, and seem to have stopped um, a Ukrainian advance uh, in the south, which the Ukrainian army had has pushed through to another bridgehead, but but is uh, around Robotinia and has been stalled there again. So important to to keep in mind for listeners, keep in mind around that. And then the third story, the final story that I think is important, David, for your listeners catching up with the weekend news is is Putin's threats towards Finland. Finland joined NATO in April, having been neutral since uh, the end of World War Two. Um, it had been part of the Russian Empire until 1917, and then there was a period of independence, and then it was invaded, the Winter War of 1939 and, and 1940, etc., and then fought against the Soviet Union during World War II uh, intimately before having to switch sides again. Anyway, that's the backstory. It had been neutral. It, it decided to join NATO after Kremlin invaded Finland in, in February last year, and it eventually joined in, in April. Now, these comments by Putin were really some of the first direct comments that I can remember him making since Finland joined NATO. If you, We know that Putin absolutely hates NATO. It's one of his key reasons for invading Ukraine. And he said that Finland joining NATO was going to cause problems. And he said, we didn't have any problems with, um, with, with Finland previously. Now they joined NATO, we're going to have problems. And, uh, and he confirmed he's reactivating an old military district, the Leningrad military district, which borders Finland, southern Finland and, and the Baltics as a consequence. So difficult, worrying things here. This is all part of the bigger story about Russia increasing its militarization, etc., and a reaction to to this NATO phobia that that Russia has. And it also plays into Finnish concerns that the Kremlin has triggered some sort of hybrid warfare against it in the last couple of months. If you remember in November and the beginning of December, Finland was accusing Russia of of funneling migrants from the Middle East and uh, South Asia through through to its borders, giving them bicycles to help them get across the border, etc., um, as some sort of hybrid war to, warfare to unsettle Finland and, and the EU. So now we sort of had confirmation from Putin that he is agitating, to, to put it lightly, along the, the Finnish border. Well, thank you very much, James, for taking us through all of that. Just quickly, you said that you were watching the uh, marathon press conference and question and answer session from Putin. Is there anything you took away from it? Was it as really as as, as difficult to get through as as some of the analysts have suggested? Yeah, I think it was actually. It was. It was a fairly. It, it was a fairly dull i'd say is probably the right word dull um press conference by peter standard there were there were hints at his confidence and his aggression but really it, it was a very it was very focused at a domestic audience 
trying to display sort of confidence and calmness. If you, if you remember, he'd a, a week earlier, he'd confirmed that he was going to run in the presidential election in, in March. And actually over this weekend, he officially took the nomination by, by, by a group of, he, he confirmed that he's running as an independent, nominated by, you know, several hundred um, Russians, etc. So, so you've got to look at that question answer session in the context of a domestic presidential campaign. And he needs to betray it an aura of almost dullness and, and normality, having triggered this war, which has upset uh, stability within Russia. He's got to try and reimpose that. So that, I think that's what he was trying to do. As far as listening to this podcast are, are concerned, the big takeaway was he actually reconfirmed his primary initial war objective in Ukraine. He said, my, my objectives haven't changed from February 22. And we all know that that was the capitulation of, of Ukraine, the surrender of Ukraine. So may, may, maybe that was important confirmation of, of his actual ambition and the fact he's in this war for the long run and uh, he's prepared to see it, see it to the end and, and looking confident. I think that is the main takeaway for uh, listeners of, the, of this podcast. Brilliant. And just very quickly, James, Christmas must, is obviously approaching in, in Riga. What's, what's it like to be there? Are you, are you seeing much evidence? Yeah, it's a lovely Christmas market. It's plenty of tourists piling into the old town. It's much more laid back and less pumped up and less commercial than Edinburgh, where I'm normally based. So it's a relief to be here, particularly nice gin- gingerbread to to be eating and glue wine and more wine to be drinking. But yeah, all good. I can recommend it highly enough. That's made me actually quite jealous. Thank you so much, James. Look forward to hearing from you at the end of the podcast too. Um, but Dr. Thomas Clausen, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'm going to hand over to Francis now to conduct this part of the interview, but we look forward to uh, hearing what you have to say, and I'm sure we'll have some questions as well at the end of this. Francis Sternley. Well, thanks, David and Thomas. Always a pleasure to have you on the podcast. It's actually been a little while, a few months, but whenever we're on, of course, we talk about Germany and also some historical topics. So let's begin with the former. Last week on Friday, we talked on the podcast about this EU summit and Olaf Scholz's successful attempt, some calling it a masterstroke, to, in a sense, convince Orban or using some jiggery pokery uh, to stop him blocking EU accession talks for Ukraine to begin. Obviously, he wasn't happy about those proceeding, but he was told by Scholz to leave the room so that the rest of the members of the EU could grant the accession talks to begin whilst he was conveniently out having a coffee. This has never been done in the EU before and many people are applauding Olaf Scholz for doing this. But how is the German media talking about this diplomatic feat? Thanks, uh, Francis. Good to be back. Well, in the last episode of the podcast, uh, Joe made the excellent point that in some way the real actual headline is that Orban was able to point out that there are 75 further occasions to block Ukraine's accession to the EU. And I would say that the reaction to the meeting and the German media was likewise rather muted. Yes, the breakthrough was noted, including Scholz's uh, diplomatic feat of convincing Orban to leave the room during the vote. But as Markus Becker, a journalist at the Spiegel, noted, this was possibly the most expensive coffee of all times. And likewise, the left-leaning Tuts titled, it was a coffee with a shot of bright money. And after all, Orban got his billions. There's another fight for releasing the funds that Ukraine desperately needs in January. And there are many more opportunities for Orban uh, to throw a spanner in the works. 
But on the other hand, I would say that it is a rather historic step for the European Union and for Ukraine because it makes clear that there is a vision for the post-war period and that this vision includes a free Ukraine, which will be part of the free world and the West. Um, of course, it's a constant theme in our discussions that Western politics moves too slowly and too hesitantly. But it, it is also notable that we are observing quite a significant development. And I can only concur with uh, Ukraine's foreign minister, Dimitro Kuleba, who not only applauded Scholz's initiative, but who also said that he hopes that this will be a broader and irreversible uh, reversal of uh, Germany's position. Well, thank you very much for that. Interesting to hear the perspective from Berlin. Now, more generally, Germany has been in the news quite a lot recently. Lots of criticism sent its way with regard to not sending Taurus missiles, although it is, of course, important to also remember that Germany is still the biggest European donator to Ukraine of military equipment and other things too. But in your view, how has the public opinion in Germany shifted with regards to the support for Ukraine in the last few months since we had you on? Um, that's quite a difficult question. For a start, there's a lot of discontent with Scholz's uh, traffic light coalition in general. So a recent survey by Germany's public broadcasting company, the ARD, showed that 81% of the population are dissatisfied, so mildly or strongly dissatisfied with the government. And a lot of this content has to do with domestic problems, energy prices, climate policies, etc. But there's also some grumbling about the position regarding Ukraine. And it's quite interesting to look at the numbers and the opinion polls. And in my view, the most important number is that still only or, well, significantly, 37% of Germans says that Germany's support for Ukraine by means of weapons delivery has been going too far. But that also means, of course, that there are 73% who say, well, it's not going far enough, or at least it's sufficient. And likewise, only 20% uh, of Germans criticize the sanctions against Russia, as opposed to 42% who think that there should be even further sanctions against Russia. Now, the big question, and I think this is also a theme that came up in recent episodes, because it's also a, a discussion point in a lot of other Western countries, there are 55% of Germans who think there should be more diplomatic efforts to end the war. And to me, this shows in a way that there's still a widespread misreading of Putin's actual intentions, which go, um, as you, uh, of course, agree, far beyond securing a land bridge to Crimea. Um, but I would say it's pretty clear that he still aims at destroying the entirety of the Ukrainian nation. And then potentially he's planning to further expand into the states of the former Warsaw Pact, including Riga and uh, Lithuania and Latvia and Estonia, etc. So the call for more diplomacy probably also reflects a certain pessimism about Ukraine's chances to win. So 50%, so roughly half of Germany's population believe that it's not going to be possible for Ukraine to win with Western weapons. But rather ironically, and this is a different opinion, Paul, uh, from September, 56% also don't believe it's possible to win, to end the war by diplomatic means. So it's quite unclear how uh, the German public thinks uh, the war is ultimately going to end. But finally, also with a view to the uh, recent EU summit, the most interesting uh, point is probably that 56% of the or roughly half of the Germans support the idea that Ukraine should join the EU in the next couple of years. And even though it might take much longer than those couple of years, it shows that Scholz's initiative at least had some public backing. Interesting. Now, Scholz, I think it's important that we, 
I suppose I'll un- underline the point that this is actually a very challenging moment politically for Olaf Scholz and his traffic light coalition. They've had a rough few weeks, few months, one could argue, really, and it's not even clear that they can pass a budget for 2024. What are the implications of that, in your view, for Germany's financial and material support for Ukraine? Because, of course, they have been this major backer. And if that does cause difficulties, I'm guessing it could be quite severe. But interested to hear your perspective on that. Well, indeed, we had a couple of very interesting weeks since the German Supreme Court judged that Scholz's budget for 2024 contravened the debt break of the German constitution. So after a few long nights, there's now been a new compromise, a new budget. And we're going to see how that'll go. There's at the moment in Berlin a huge protest by farmers who are saying that they are bearing the brunt of the new uh, savings that uh, Scholz tried to implement. But I think the most important message with regards to Ukraine is that the support will not be cut for the moment. There are 8 billion euros in the budget for further weapons deliveries and 6 billion euros of support for Ukrainian refugees in Germany. Having said this, as far as I understood it, the money for Ukrainian weapons will be taken out of the special fund uh, of 100 billion euros of the Bundeswehr that was part of the whole Zeitenwende package. And to be honest, that's quite a difficult decision because Germany's armed forces need to need the resources themselves. And it's also not clear how Germany will eventually fulfill NATO's 2% quota. And I think most military experts, as far as I understood it, think that 2% is actually far too little. And not even being able to match that is certainly uh, going to cause problems for the armed forces, but it's also going to raise uh, quite a few eyebrows uh, in America, where not only the Republicans have been arguing for quite some time that there's a certain amount of free riding going on, And I can't see how uh, Germany cannot fulfill those 2%. Yeah, it's not quite the Zeitenwender that Olaf Scholz promised in terms of military spending, at least. I think it's just worth, since you mentioned that, 2024, I believe I'm right in saying, will mark 10 years since NATO passed that suggestion, I suppose it was. It wasn't formally mandated that we would have two NATO countries contributing 2% and only a handful. Sometimes it depends on on the given year, but usually it's only Britain and one or two others that fulfil that 2%. And so it speaks to that failure you articulate there. And of course, Donald Trump particularly was the one who famously in that clip was criticising the Germans and and others for not doing that. And of course, that sort of laughed in his face back then, but it doesn't seem really a laughing matter now. But as somebody was saying to me last week, I think it's also we're in a catch-22 situation here because, of course, if, for example, NATO does suddenly begin spending 2%, every country sends 2%, then some in America will start pointing and say, well, actually, Europe doesn't need us. We can step back. But of course, if they do, don't start doing it, then you get the criticisms that you've just made, which is that, of course, from American perspective, they'll say, well, they're not pulling their weight. Why should we be the ones that bail them out? So with the political fault lines being as they are at the moment, this is actually extremely precarious for Europe. And really, it depends, I think, on the ideological underpinning of whoever is in the White House. But let's return to the ideological underpinning in in, in Germany. Now, in the spring, you wrote a short article about Putin's influence on extremist parties in Germany, on the left and on the right, something that's actually quite rare to have them in both camps, as it were, at the same time. Usually in European countries, it's usually on one side more than the other. 
How influential are they now, almost two years into the war? Is there a danger that they will pull the country in more of one direction or another and more sceptically on Ukraine? Well, first of all, I would say that also in some other countries, you can see a weird divergence of the extreme right and the extreme left, be it um, the communists and Le Pen in France or maybe even some of the squad uh, of the Democrats and some of the fringes of the Republicans who are both very critical uh, of support uh, for Ukraine. But in Germany, I think there's there's been quite a long tradition of national Bolshevism. And indeed, I do think that both the extreme left and the extreme right are quite pro-Putin minded or that they show certain um, that they are quite close to saying, well, we should now seek diplomatic solutions. We need Russia. We should stop weapons deliveries, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think that those voices, and that's a contrast to uh, other countries, will become part of official government uh, policies. So both the AfD and the the Linke, and now a new party that was founded by Sarah Wagenknecht, which is trying to tap into this national Bolshevist milieu, if I I can uh, say it like this, but provocatively, and they, I don't think they will become part of any ruling coalition after a future German election. But I think it's still very worthwhile to look very closely what's going on there and what kind of statements they make. And for example, a few months ago, Tino Kupala, who is uh, one of the co-chairs or co-leaders of the Alternative for Germany, so the right-wing populist party, he said, multipolarity means that the world is no longer ruled by a single world power, but by several equal powers enforcing their ideas of law and order in their regions. And I think that's a very striking statement by the leader of a party that is part of the German parliament, because first of all, it very much echoes Putin's idea of a multipolar world order. But also it's quite striking that a German politician dares to say that there are certain regions where great powers can, should enforce law and order, as if as if the countries in those regions don't have uh, independent sovereignty. And this is a concept that is taken basically from Karl Schmidt, a German lawyer who was very close to the Nazis, who published in 1941 a huge treatise on völkerrechtliche Großraumordnung, so international order in great spaces, where he basically advanced the idea that states that are alien to a certain space or to a certain region should not intervene there. And the implication, I would say, is that Kupala thinks that this is not only a good concept, but that clearly Russia has the right to do whatever uh, Russia wants in their space and that the West as a alien sort of power should stay out of this region. And this is very worrisome. And maybe to add to this, it's also clear that where he gets those ideas from, because a couple of months ago, one of his uh, staffers, Dimitrios Kizudis, published a small treatise in one of the right-wing publishing houses entitled Middle Europe and Multipolarity, where he also argues that the age of multipolarity is dawning, so also echoing uh, Putin's words. And Kizudis, so the staffer said, the idea of a world of equal large areas is returning to Germany from Asia. So he's also echoing Schmidt's point. And while Poland is driving a wedge into the continent with its, its uh, three C's initiative, Germany must build a bridge between West and East. And to this end, he's calling for a central European initiative, a middle Europa initiative that goes that's separate from the EU and NATO. And these are some very uh, dangerous ideas. They don't have any purchase at the moment in mainstream parties, fortunately, but it's very clear that there's something brewing 
on the very extreme fringes that one should definitely keep an eye on. Fascinating. Thank you. What I mean, can we talk, Thomas, about a German political strategy in the long run, by which I mean quite often here in Britain, say, what is Britain's long-term goals for its military or long-term goals regarding America or the Indo-Pacific or Europe? Can we, is it helpful to talk about that in the German context? And with that in mind, there's been a lot of criticism, we were just referring to it, of Germany in America. Many people think Germany had this key role to play in the military sphere following its, of course, reunification and its vital role in the European economic space. Uh, Are there conversations about the implications of a Trump victory in 2024 for how Germany is perceived? Because that's very much an active conversation here, very much an active conversation in Ukraine and on this podcast. But is it in Germany? Yes, it is. But I am a bit worried that it's basically not going far enough. So there was a recent interview, I think one and a half weeks ago, Um, in Die Zeit, one of uh, Germany's major newspapers, and they asked uh, Boris Pistorius, the defense minister, on precisely this question. And um, so the Zeit said, uh, let's continue with something simple. What happens in terms of security policy if Donald Trump wins the election in the fall of 2024 and becomes U.S. president again? And Pistorius gave a very striking and I would say quite worrisome um, answer. He said, well, thanks for the simple question. And where's the crystal ball you want me to look into? But seriously, we shouldn't panic now. When Giorgia Meloni became head of government in Italy, many predicted a setback for the whole of Europe. Domestically, you you don't have to like everything Ms. Meloni does. But in terms of foreign policy, I don't have much to criticize. And I think it's, I mean, first of all, Trump and Meloni are very different, also in terms of foreign policy, of course. And it's also striking to compare Trump re-election to an election in Italy, because, of course, the United States with a nuclear arsenal and etc., they play a much different role in terms of global security than Italy. And it's it's a very weird way of evading this question. And I do think there's there's some worry about a Trump victory, but not a strategy regarding what to do if this would happen. And I think this is very dangerous uh, indeed. So we have, there's another interesting podcast. And if your listeners understand a German, I would recommending tuning in from time to time by Paul Ronsheimer, who is a journalist at The Bild. And he spoke to Lars Klingbeil, who is the head of Scholz's party, the Social Democrats. And in this uh, podcast, Klingbeil wavered. He said, well, I spoke to a, a colleague in Lithuania. Is uh, Putin going to go further? And Klingbeil says, well, I think I agree with my Lithuanian colleague that Putin might even target Lithuania. At the same time, he says, I don't think he actually is going to dare to attack the European Union. Then Klingbeil quite clearly said, well, Russia is a nuclear power. The entire society is now completely geared towards war. Um, there's a huge worry that Trump might give up on Ukraine. There's some sort of, there's a potential that there is a divide in the European Union that widens and it's very important now to focus on the axis between Germany, France and Poland. And I mean this is all quite correct, but I I I'm missing a sense of urgency because it's not unlikely that Trump might win. It's not unlikely that he might give up on Ukraine. And I think it would be good if uh, Europe had a strategy. And starting with Germany, France and Poland is probably a good idea. But I think it it would be um better to have uh, such a strategy. And I don't think it's there at the moment. I absolutely 
echo that. And I think that, unfortunately, we've been talking about it for some time on the podcast, Europe does not have a strategy. And the fear, of course, is that it's left it too late because of the amount of time required to build defensive capability. But just one last question from me, Thomas, before opening up the floor. We can't have you on without talking about something deeply historical. Um, It's always one of the favourites for listeners. The last time you joined us, we talked about Putin's historical vision. Now, would you say we're also seeing a clash of different philosophies of history, different understandings about history at the moment? And, And if so, how would that view help us make sense of some of the current discussions, including perhaps the recent EU summit? Yes, I think there are two two bits that I would like to mention. So the one goes back to this concept of great regions or however you want to call it. And that's basically, so what Karl Schmidt, this Nazi lawyer did, was he took the Monroe Doctrine, he took the content, so the concept of swears of influence, and then basically fashioned it into sort of a a new concept that was very useful for the Nazis before they invaded uh, the Soviet Union in 41. So the idea that you can divide up Central Europe, the Ribbentrop-Molotov Pact, etc. And Schmidt was also famously unhappy with uh, Hitler's attack on the Soviet Union because he said, well, this breaks this idea that you have great regions and great powers in those regions. Um, And I would say that this idea of great regions and spheres of influence that can be where military action is justified, even if it goes against the sovereignty of um, a state, that this is still very much in the mind of, or very present in the mind of someone like Putin. And I would say that the West and also the European Union has a very different idea of sovereignty because, I mean, some of your listeners might disagree, but I think in the context of geopolitics, the European Union and NATO is a great uh, tool for preserving the sovereignty of the smaller states, particularly, for example, the Baltic states, etc., because it's very clear that without some sort of protection, a great power or great military power such as Russia would just overrun those countries. So there are two very different visions. The one is focused on great regions and the other one is focused on sovereignty, even of very small states. And I think in, in some contexts, all of the European states are, are small unless they work together. The other sort of vision of history is, I think, that there's, and this is quite critical, critical is that there's a co- contrast between long-termism and short-termism. And about Putin, it's famously said that he's, he, um, that in his room, he pretended to talk to Ivan the Terrible or Stalin and whoever, and that he has a very long durée view of history, which is, of course, entirely a contra- uh, construct. It's a fantasy of history, but still he thinks and decades and uh, centuries and not in, in, in terms of a few years. And that's dangerous because it contrasts with, I think, a lot of the um, Western democratic uh, politicians who mainly think in terms of maybe a year, maybe a budget year, maybe legislative periods, so maybe a couple of years, but who don't think that at the moment we should be thinking in terms of a long durée and our long-term vision. And going back to our very to the first question, that's, I think, why the EU summit was quite significant, because precisely because Ukraine, the accession of Ukraine will take several years, I think Joe mentioned uh, 2030, because of that, it's good to have a long-term vision that goes beyond the you know, the immediacy of, yeah, the current meetings or the current political debates. 
Well, thank you so much, Dr. Thomas Clausen, for joining us. That was really fascinating. I've just got one quick question as somebody who's not, not a massive German watcher. How secure is Olaf Scholz at the moment? Are there any elections we should be aware of? And what's your sense of his political longevity at this moment in time? I think it's probably all three coalition partners are quite keen on uh, avoiding any elections at the moment because in the polls, both the, the Liberals, so the party that I'm quite close to, the Greens and the SPD, they pull very badly. The AfD is doing quite well with over 20 percent and no one wants uh, elections at this point. And the fact that there is now this rugged compromise about the budget shows that they are still willing to get their act together. So I don't think there will be an election in Germany before 2025 when it's uh, due. But also I would say if, if there's an election, we would likely see either a coalition with the Conservatives and the SPD or a Jamaica coalition that's the Conservatives, the Liberals and the Greens. And I don't think that there would be a massive shift or that would be a shock to Germany's policy towards Ukraine. So I do think that the main issue for Germany is the question of how Germany and the European Union deals with a Trump victory. And maybe the last thing I can quote, and that's uh, another recommendation, there's uh, Klaus uh, Olshausen. He's a former NATO general. He has a he works now for a think tank called the ISPSW, and they publish a few briefings uh, every now and then. And he uh, picked up a saying by the Dutch uh, defense minister, uh, Kaiser Ollongren, and she said, you know, we, sh we have to move from how long it takes to whatever it takes for Ukraine to win this war. And I think in terms of strategic vision, this is very much what, what is needed. And we haven't seen enough of that. And that goes back to the discussion, of course, about Taurus. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Thomas Klausen, for your time and for coming on the podcast live. It's always appreciated. Let's move then to our final thoughts. Thomas, will give you a little bit of a break to catch your breath. So Francis or James, would you like to go first? I'm happy to jump in first, David. Just want to say, first of all, thank you to all of those listeners who have sent their audio clips as requested on Friday. We were listening to a few of those this morning and, well, the wonderful and obviously we'll have some montages going in future episodes of those that we've had several from berlin lots from america i think one or two from brazil a couple from australia so just amazing so thank you very much for all those who've done that and to people who have shared on x or twitter whichever you use to refer it, photographs of you listening to the podcast with the hashtag ukraine the latest it's i haven't actually managed to look at today's so um, i'm looking forward to doing that later on so just a word about that to say thank you and i said at the end of last week that uh, i would share or we would share a list of charities that people may be interested to donate to because it's probably the most requested question at this time of year now as independent journalists it's just important to say we can't really recommend particular charities for people to donate to it's not our role we've spoken to many charities this year of course vans without borders will be familiar with many of you gp now carp or k-h-a-r-p-p -P, all brilliant charities that we've of course interviewed key components on but uh, what we're going to do i think is have a link to the ukrainian institute of london's list of charities and organizations they recommend to stress that's not only british charities this is worldwide charities who are involved in supporting ukraine but they've compiled a very good list so we will share that it will be in the description for the episode and in the descriptions for the episode throughout the rest of the week brilliant thank you francis james kilner in riga 
Hi, David. So really just we're now three months out from this Russian election. I just I think it's really worth for listeners keeping this in mind. Elections by their very nature are destabilizing. Putin really did fire the starting gun on his campaign over the weekend. Like I said, on Saturday, he accepted the nomination officially as an independent candidate. And on Sunday, he used a United Russia uh, conference to make a sort of what, what was a thinly disguised stump speech talking about the importance of sovereignty. He didn't reference Ukraine by name, but he talked about Russia not being one of those countries that could surrender its, its sovereignty to another country for a little piece of sausage. I mean, that was uh, a clear reference to Ukraine in his eyes becoming a NATO US vassal state. So Really, we're we're definitely election season in Russia. We've got three months until till that's done. So keep an eye on that. With that in mind, and really importantly, we still haven't seen or heard anything of Alexei Navalny since December the sixth. He is, of course, the the one of the main headline opposition figures in Russia. He's been in prison uh, on extremism charges since 2021. He's he's down for 19 years. And the UN this morning has issued a statement saying they're very concerned about his welfare, even though he is in prison. He is still influential. He can still agitate and he has lots of supporters working on his behalf, mainly outside Russia, some inside Russia. But he is a, a huge figurehead for, for the opposition. So, And he is he disappeared. There is There are rumours that he's been moved to a different prison, a higher security prison, etc., etc. But people are becoming very concerned about his, uh, his safety. So a very important story to watch out for. Well, thank you very much, Francis and James Kilner calling in from Riga. Thomas, just before we come to you, it's it's been a pleasure to spend so much time talking to you and hearing your thoughts on Germany. Of course, listeners, German listeners or otherwise, please do send in your questions as well. And we can certainly return to it in the future. But Thomas Clausen, would you like the very final words? Well, thank you very much. So Francis just mentioned also Taurus. And maybe it's worth to focus on that question for a tiny moment. Is it likely that Scholz is going to send Taurus? And here I would say only if the US follows up with more attackums. So I think the last time we saw them was in October, but I could be wrong. And I think he will only change his position if America uh, moves forward uh, first, as we have seen again and again with Scholz. But of course, it could also evolve depending on how the actual fighting on the front line goes. But I don't think that in terms of overall strategy, Germany is uh, willing or able to take the lead. And I would say maybe that's also for the better. I think it makes sense for an overall strategy that's embedded in uh, Western uh, philosophies or Western approaches. And I don't think that Germany is uh, prepared or equipped to, to move forward alone. Thanks, Francis, James and Thomas. As listeners may remember, I spent some weeks in the summer accompanying British volunteers driving vehicles, aid and equipment out to the front lines in Ukraine. It's, therefore, a story close to my heart. So I wanted to understand more about the impact these vehicles can have and the repercussions of the decision in London not to send cars to Ukraine that would be scrapped under London's new utilizer zone. For listeners abroad, that's the ultra-low emission zone. So I spoke to Brooks Newmark, former Conservative MP and Minister for Civil Society and founder of the charity Angels for Ukraine. Here's our conversation. Well, Brooks, thanks so much for your time. We've heard now for days the story that London Mayor Sadiq Khan has blocked a plan to send cars to Ukraine. Can you talk to talk through your reaction to this? And it'd be good to hear maybe about the impact that these vehicles can have once they get in country. Sure. So just to give a bit of background. So I've been out there for most uh, of the war since the beginning. 
and mainly involved in logistics. So evacuating women and children from the front line, you know, I evacuated over 35,000. And then sort of second part I've been doing is medical evacuations. So moving wounded soldiers and civilians from military hospitals to civilian hospitals. And then the third bit has been doing humanitarian aid drops. The reason why these vehicles are important is because there's a huge shortage of vehicles. It's a war. And, uh, you know, we've had to retrofit sort of white vans effectively into small ambulances and so on. The four by fours, which I've been bringing over, which I know you've been involved in a little bit, uh, are important because they're used for moving wounded people. Um, They're used for moving ordnance kit, uh, anything that's really needed on the front line by soldiers. And interestingly enough, the average life of one of these vehicles is somewhere between four and six weeks because you're sort of at the front line, which is why, you know, I've never, I personally have never paid more than three and a half grand for one of these because the the life cycle is the chances are they get hit by shrapnel or something and they don't generally last a long time. So this bring, begs the issue of the scrappage scheme. Now, Sadiq Khan which I thought was uh, had said to um, the Ukrainians that he was willing to let the uh, Ukrainians have these vehicles for free um, because otherwise he would have to pay for scrapping them and everything else. I was sort of surprised to read, I guess in the past week really, that he has now said that he won't um, for some technical reason, which I don't understand, he won't allow people like my charity and other charities working in Ukraine to have these vehicles. He would prefer taxpayers in London to pay for the destruction of these vehicles with all the environmental impact as well as costs associated with that. And to me, that makes no sense. For us, it's important because we're trying to help Ukraine. This is a great way for Londoners to help Ukraine and to say for some obscure technical reason they people like my charity can't have them to take over to Ukraine is almost Kafkaesque. And I just sort of I don't understand it because if it's a technical reason, then he can change the rules to get around that. To say, well, he said and this is his solution, by the way. I've set up a website. So if people want to donate their cars, they can do that. That's nothing to do with the scrappage scheme. I can go, as I've been doing, going to friends of mine who've been donating four by fours. That's not the issue. The issue is he is scrapping, I'm assuming, thousands and thousands of these vehicles that I believe could be used uh, on the front line. Because at the end of the day, whether they're scrapped, blown up or hit by shrapnel, at least they get a sort of a semi-second life by going out to somewhere like Ukraine. And by the way, what is important to know is that these vehicles, and we make sure, as do I think other charities, that they don't end up in the hands of civilians who then use them to drive around secondhand cars. And I think this has been an issue that I know some people have been concerned with. You know, if it's a flashy new BMW, yeah, or secondhand BMW, I'm sure those do end up in civilian life. Most of these vehicles are pretty much on their last legs anyway. And what we try and do is get them. We have a mechanic who looks at them, make sure they're fit for purpose. 
They're then uh, camouflage. They're sort of generally painted green. And anything that needs to go in them to help the soldiers, uh, we make sure is in the vehicles themselves. That's a bit of a long-winded answer to your question. Reading our story that came out a few days ago, we've got this line. This is from Daniel Sheridan, defence editor. This week, Mr Khan wrote to Mr Klitschko, that's Vitaly Klitschko, the mayor of Kiev, to say he would not allow the proposal because it did not re- meet the, quote, legal threshold, end quote, that requires the ULES scrappage scheme to benefit Londoners from a, quote, economic, social and environmental perspective. So if those are the, if those are the, if that's the standard you have to get to, to sort of say yes to this, what's your response to that? Yeah, my, my response is, okay, the economic is taxpayers have to pay for scrappage, right? So there is money that is being used to pay for the scrappage. This isn't done for free by somebody. So Sadiq Khan has to pay for that. That's the economic issue. The environmental issue is they're then scrapped and the scrap is dealt with somewhere in the UK. So there's an environmental impact that's negative by actually going through the scrapping process because 100% of these vehicles are not completely recycled. Number three, the social benefit clearly is we're doing something for a good charitable cause, which is obviously helping Ukraine. So for me, all three of those boxes are ticked. I'm not a lawyer and I don't know what thresholds that they've created for those, but instinctively, I feel all three of those hurdles that he or his lawyers have set uh, are met. And if he really wants this to happen, that's the point of being mayor. He can make this happen. If he doesn't want to make it happen, he won't make it happen. The end of our story says a City Hall spokesman said that altering the ULES scheme for the purposes of exporting vehicles to Ukraine is not possible within the current limits of the GLA Act. And they insisted, this is the spokesman, insisted the authorities stood in solidarity with Ukraine. Is this not something in that case that the Conservative government can get involved in if it's something that's beyond the, uh, beyond the purview of, of the London authorities? I mean, I'm, I'm hoping so. I mean, I've, I've written to my local MP, which is pretty Patel. I've, I've contacted the ex-defense secretary, Ben Wallace. I know Bob Seeley, I think the MP is involved in this. You know, and I know I'm assuming other people have been contacting their MPs on this issue because it, it is, it's ridiculous, I find. To sum up your argument then, what would you say to Sadiq Khan if you had the opportunity? I think, look, Sadiq, you have an opportunity here to show a bit of leadership here. And my view is you need to deal with your in-house counsel, in-house lawyers to actually make the argument that this does meet all three thresholds. Uh, Lawyers are there not to always say no. Lawyers should be there to also find solutions to problems. And it seems to me the people who Sadiq Khan surrounds himself with in London are a bunch of people who all they can do is say no rather than figure out a solution. I'm asking him as mayor of London to find a solution. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. 
So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.